Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. We're about to close out the year here, and before we turn off the lights and lock the door uh, and take a little break, I-, I wanted to take some time to say thank you to all of you. Um, I'm constantly amazed by how many people download and listen to this podcast, pass on our work to others, and have made it part of their local conversation. We, we couldn't do any of this without you, and I, I thank you for being there. I thank you for the feedback. I thank you for the support. And I thank you especially for sharing our message and doing what you can to build strong towns. We celebrate Christmas at my house. I'm headed home actually to continue some cookie baking. It's the tradition that we kind of embrace around our house this time of year. But whatever tradition that you have, whatever you celebrate, I hope for you that it is joyous and peaceful and merry. Uh, surrounded by people you love and and care about. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll see you next year. Take care. You're listening to The Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This week I have returning guest, Eli Damon. I'll probably not do you justice here, but I know you live in Massachusetts, you teach math, and you're a bike advocate, along with being just someone who bikes themselves. Eli, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Let me get that bio correct, because you teach math, but tell me where you teach math again. Right now, I, I'm not teaching math at all, but in theory, that's my that's my uh, vocation. For some reason, my brain latched onto that one because I am a math person myself. And yeah. whenever I run into someone who's a numbers person like that, I'm like, ah, I can gel with this guy. Cool. <laughs> I wanted to have you on because you have a an ordeal you've been going through that has now come to fruition. And I think it's important to share that. But before we get to that, I want to back up and kind of set the groundwork for people that didn't hear you last time you were on and just gives people some context and some background as to what happened and how you got to this point. So can we back up? And I want to talk about essentially the incident that happened and then I want to get in a little bit to, you know, your approach to cycling and why you have that approach. And then we'll get into a little bit about the settlement. From a very beginning part, can you just describe the initial incident that kind of set this whole thing off? Well, actually, if you don't mind, I'd like to back up even a little further than that. That's fine. Because listeners who haven't heard my last podcast, I'm legally blind. I'm not allowed to drive a car for most of my life for the first 28 years of my life, that was a really crippling condition to not be able to travel freely and live the kind of full sort of independent life that other people take for granted. And then in 2005, I read this book that explained to me that if I rode a bike and I followed the same rules as motorists, then I could use the roads, that I could get the same flexibility and predictability out of traveling by bike as motorists get by driving motor vehicles. That really just changed everything for me. It just opened up this whole new world of possibilities and I was able to no longer live like a 
disabled person and and live like this this fuller, more independent life. Where you and I met in person for the first time, you had actually biked. I can't remember exactly how far, but it was not like a short little jaunt. <laughs> yeah, about 50 miles. Yeah. I mean, you had gone 50 miles across country to get to uh, this place where we were doing a curbside chat. There would be no chance of you being able to do that. Obviously, you couldn't do it legally by automobile. And without that, it would be you know very difficult or and or expensive for you to make that trip. That's correct. I wanted to explain what it was like to gain that ability so you know, have an idea of what it was like to have it taken away. I wasn't going to start with that. I'm glad you did because I think it's an important part of the context. But a lot of what we're going to talk about here is just cycling and the fact that cyclists are treated as second-class citizens. If you add yeah. the fact that you have you know, a vision impairment, <laughs> now you're talking about a third-class citizen. You're being treated in a way that is completely different than the way we orient the rest of society. So I'm glad you brought that in when you talk about handicap. There's a lot there to discuss, but I think there's a lot to discuss there too just from a, a cycling standpoint as well because this applies to people who don't have the same situation. But I think it does create a little bit more understanding of why you're so passionate about this. Right. I mean, one of the important things that I learned when I read this book, is that you need to control your space so that you get good sight lines, so that you stay away from hazards, and so that other drivers don't invade your space. And sometimes that means, you know, if you're in a lane that's narrow, you have to ride in the middle of the lane so that other drivers know, like, this lane is occupied, I need to change lanes, and they do it, they do it early. So that's what I was doing when I was riding through the town of Hadley in about four years ago. You did send me this stuff, and I did go through yeah. it and look at it. And tell me if I'm wrong, because I was wrong last time we chatted. <laughs> we'll see if I've learned anything since. The idea is, you know, you are a part of traffic. If you act like you're part of traffic, you'll be treated as if you're part of traffic. If you act like you don't belong there, you're a marginal player, you are kind of skittish off to the side, it's very easy for someone in an automobile to ignore you, to not pay you the respect of being in that space. They'll get too close and your margin for error at that point in terms of a very serious accident goes way, way down. You've expressed that perfectly, I think. I learned from you, dude. It, may, it makes a, <laughs> from an engineering standpoint, it makes a ton of sense because, you know, when you are in the traffic stream, yes, it may kind of make some cars, you know, some drivers upset that they can't drive 50 or drive 30 when they would maybe want to. They've got to drive 15 for, for or 20. Few, for a few seconds. For a few seconds. Exactly. Do it for a few seconds. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But for the cyclists, it's vastly more safe to be out there and have people be aware of you, be cognizant of the fact that you're there than it is to allow them to essentially just whiz right by you or marginalize you because you're hanging out on the edge. And it's not just about safety. It's that once you give yourself the predictability of using the roads the way they were meant to be used, traveling by bicycle becomes much more efficacious in addition to being safer. But then about four years ago, I was riding along this strode in the four-lane divided highway through the town of Hadley is built around, and I get stopped by the police. police officer tells me, you know, you're not allowed to be here. You know, you need to get off the road and threaten to arrest me. And, and he stopped me again a month later, and he seized my bicycle and made me walk to the police station to get it back. 
And at this point, I was just, I became just so terrified of what he might do to me that I essentially felt like I was on virtual house arrest. I was afraid to go out, you know, unless there was someone else with me. And I got really depressed. I became isolated from all my friends and everything. Now, these first two stops... I think it's important because I did see some images and some video of what this strode looks like. This is a four lane. Is it divided or not divided? The geometry varies a lot along the the length of it, but at this point it was four lane divided. Okay. So you've got two lanes, you've got a center divide, and then you've got two lanes going the other direction. You are cycling generally in the far right lane, correct? Yeah. The middle of the right lane. And the police are pulling you over and going as far as confiscating your cycle saying, you know, Hey, you don't have a right to be out here in this space because this is automobile only space. Right. And this is all before the big stop, right? Yeah. So I'm talking to all kinds of people pleading with them for help. Like, you know, trying to resolve this. Basically I was told, well, there's, there's nothing you can do. You just have to go out there and pretend that you're not under threat and just see what happens. That was very hard for me to do, but, you know, I sort of ventured out. This is after being... uh, Yeah, told you're not welcome. Well, after I was basically shut up in my home for a very long time, just afraid to go out. Right. So I just sort of started to venture out and do some some social things. You know, at one point I was stopped by the same guy again. Actually, I bought a a camera, a, a sport video camera, because... I teach cycling, and I've seen other instructors get this on-bike video that's really, you know, illustrative. So I wanted to do that, too. So I got this camera. I had the camera on, and I get stopped by a police officer, and first he writes me a ticket, which was kind of a joke because it was a ticket for, like, a law that didn't even exist. (laughs) Um, But then then he sees the camera, and he accused, he says, you know, you're committed wiretapping, and... You know, he sees the camera, and the next week I got notified that I was being charged with disorderly conduct and wiretapping. I watched this video. It's quite a long video because you were going along, essentially recording things from a cyclist standpoint to share with other people. I've seen these videos you do. You're like, here's a proper technique. Uh, Here's how you make a right turn. Here's how you make a left turn across traffic. They're actually very informative videos. On one of these excursions, you're pulled over and the camera's running. It's not like you went out and hid in the bushes to lure a police officer in. You're out there doing your thing and the camera's running and this guy reacts in a very negative way. You got charged with wiretapping? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wiretapping and disorderly conduct. What was the idea behind the disorderly? Just riding my bike. Okay. You that- know. Rolling right. the lane was considered just, you consider that disorderly conduct. Okay. Wow. The wiretapping thing is actually a big problem nationally, right? Now that, totally. Now that everyone has cameras, police don't like to be seen doing things that they know they shouldn't do. And so they retaliate against people who, who try to film them. Well, I, I know there are places in this country where they've actually made it illegal to target police officers in videotaping. Massachusetts is not yeah. one of those states, as far as I know. No, I know Illinois did that, but it's been overturned, that law. Yeah, well, it's <laughs> it's pretty blatantly not constitutional. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but yeah. uh, wow. I mean, the idea that you couldn't be able to videotape in a public place would be kind of bizarre. Anyway, you get pulled over. Yeah. 
did they take your bike and stuff at that time, or did they take your camera? Or did they take? No, he took the camera. He didn't take the bike. Okay, but he did um, take your camera. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and he charged me with disorderly conduct and wiretapping. Eventually, the judge threw out the charges. He said there's no evidence of a crime here. This is in like a district court, right? Yes. Did you have to hire an attorney? Did you get a public defender? I got a public defender. My what? public defender kind of got another job in the middle, and then I had to get a, another public defender, and wow. it was, didn't really work too well, but you know, it was okay in the end. So ultimately, that got thrown out. That got thrown out, but there was no consequence to the police for doing this. I still had this standing threat against me that I had no reason to believe that they weren't going to do it again. So I still was afraid of, of future interference by the police. And, yeah, understandably. Um, so the next step you took, I think it was you filed a, a civil action. Is that correct? Again, talking to people, pleading with them, like, you got to help me. Like, you know, I don't know what to do. And eventually this lawyer, Andrew Fisher, he agreed to sue the Hadley police for me asking for an injunction, basically an, an order from the court that says leave Eli alone. It's interesting because we had chatted about this before, and the suit you brought was under civil rights legislation. You weren't going saying, you know, I want a settlement of a million dollars. You were just asking essentially for your life back. Like, let me go out and bike on the streets of the city, free from, yeah, I, you know, getting pulled over and harassed for biking. You you can get on my case if I break the law, but I'm not breaking the law, so leave me alone. That's right. I wasn't asking for any money damages except for have my lawyer reimbursed for his time and everything. But yeah, I didn't stand to get any any kind of payment from this. I just wanted protection. And so the police department in the city said, you know, wow, we uh, thanks for bringing this to our attention. We didn't realize it. We were kind of ignorant on the bike laws. And uh, we will cease and desist and respect your right. Is that exactly how it went down or not? Well, if, <laughs> if that was how it went down, then it would never have gotten to the point of, of me filing a lawsuit. Sure. Because I was trying to talk to them this whole time, like resolve this in a less disruptive manner. But no, of course they didn't do that. They stuck to their guns. And what kind of arguments and were they making throughout that process, Eli? The main arguments they made is, one, Eli was breaking the law and causing a hazard, which they could not come up with any evidence for. Two, even if they weren't, the, it was reasonable for the police to believe that Eli was breaking the law and causing a hazard. The law you were breaking was the disorderly conduct law even though the judge threw that one out. It was that, and they brought in a impeding traffic thing, too, even though I, I had never been ticketed for impeding traffic, but they used that in the, as a defense. Let's talk about that one, impeding traffic. I saw that in there, and I thought, okay, it really gets down to, do you have a right to be on the roadway? In the specific yeah. cases where you were getting pulled over, you actually had two lanes of traffic, going in one right. direction. So, you know, someone could have gotten by you had they wanted to. They might have had to wait for the left lane to clear out. I'm thinking about, you know, my grandma who, you know, when she was alive, bless her soul, used to drive like 20 miles an hour in the right lane. The cops never pulled her over and said, you're impeding traffic because, you know, she was a, just a slow driver and people would go around her on the left and maybe they would be a little impatient with poor old granny, but, you know, you'd eventually get there. Nobody thought about pulling her over in a car. 
Yet that was the standard they were applying to you was that if you were in the right lane, you were impeding traffic because you weren't going a full 35 miles an hour. Is that the way they came at you? Yeah, exactly. And even if there wasn't any traffic, right, I'm still impeding traffic just potentially because I'm there. (laughs) Theoretically. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's the way it happens. I've even, last week I was stopped by a police officer as a much more polite encounter than, than, than the one we're talking about before. But he was actually saying, well, you are making other people break the law, you know, because then they have to pass you or whatever. And I was like, if they're breaking the law, then why aren't you stopping them? You're stopping me because you think like people are breaking the law because of me. I want to dwell on this for a second because I think it's really important, this assumption that those roadways belong to automobiles and belong to people in cars and that everyone else there is essentially an interloper who, you know, if they negatively impact the car traffic, just simply don't belong. Is this a mentality society-wise? Is this a mentality of law enforcement? Where does this come from? There's a very interesting answer to that. There's a book, I I haven't read it, but I heard about it. It's called Fighting Traffic by Peter Norton. I have read it. It's very good. Yeah. Well, what I'm told about the book is that one thing that he talks about in there is that this whole attitude was actually deliberately fostered by the auto industry in the 1920s in order to make car travel more convenient. You know, there was a huge propaganda campaign to say the roads are for cars, and if you're not in a car, you don't belong there. You know, it's dangerous to be on the road if you're not in a car, and and you need to get out of the way. It was incredibly successful because now people just take that for granted. Johnny on the spot here. I actually turned around and pulled fighting traffic off the bookshelf from page 211. By 1926, it was AAA policy that traffic safety was one of the chief duties and functions of automobile clubs in the United States. They and other members of Motordom were crafting a new kind of traffic safety effort, one that the councils and reformers of the early 1920s would not have recognized. It was a safety campaign without fanfare of safety weeks. It claimed that pedestrians were just as responsible as motorists for injuries and accidents. It ignored claims defending the historic rights of pedestrians to the streets, and in the new motor age, historic precedents were obsolete. Quote, we are living in a motor age, explained John Hertz of Chicago's Yellow Cab Company, and we must have not only motor age education, but a motor age sense of responsibility. It's very true in that book. He talks about how the notion that people ran the streets was kind of systematically and just incrementally over time eroded to the point where yeah. right now, I, I mean, I watch all the time, a pedestrian crossing the street in a crosswalk when they have the right of way and when the car is stopped, steps out in the street and then kind of jogs across because they know they're not welcome in that space. They even do that with me when I'm, when I'm riding like they feel guilty for making me wait for them. Right. You're the interloper. Do you think that this can be in a sense, reversed? I mean, do you think that this mentality is so deeply embedded in our culture right now, today, that you're going to be fighting a a long uphill battle? Or is this something that, I guess maybe my question is, how sympathetic have people in your city been to your plight? Well, some people have been very sympathetic and, and some people have not. 
I've seen the editorials in your paper. They seem to acknowledge that you have some rights, but do so rather reluctantly. Is that a fair way to put it? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. You're making a lot of assumptions informing that conclusion. They're not really, you know, they're not really acknowledging any of the information. Yeah, yeah. I, I got that too. Well, I, I feel yeah. like they're looking at it through the lens of people who drive everywhere. The interesting thing that you have taught me and that other people have taught me, because understand, I mean, I grew up in an automobile only place. I, until a few years ago, was automobile only. It was not crazy for me when I had a two block trip to make to get in my car and make those two blocks. I live in this culture. You and other people have over time made me far more aware it's fascinating once you start walking and once you start biking, you realize how despotic most of our environment is for people who are outside of an automobile. When you're in an automobile, it isolates you and you don't really notice your, your environment very much. And in fact, I think a lot of people, a lot of people like that because the environment is so despotic, they want to be isolated from it. But you don't have that option. No. So as this case went on and matured, when did you guys start talking seriously about, because the punchline is you settled this case, and I want to talk about the settlement. I'd like to know a little bit how the case continued to churn and mature. Did you guys get to where you were filing briefs back and forth and doing depositions or any of that kind of stuff? Well, first of all, it took a year from when my lawyer agreed to sue before the lawsuit was actually filed. And then it was over two years from the filing before it was settled. We did discovery, you know, depositions. The police looked really, really bad in the depositions. Did you sit through those? Yeah, I, w I went to all of them. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, they all basically showed that, like, they had no idea what they were talking about. They didn't really care, you know, what was going on. You didn't care yeah. as in we're ignorant of the law or didn't care to know about the law or this is a waste of my time. Why am I here? What do you mean? They continue to insist that what I was doing was illegal and dangerous even though the judge said that it wasn't illegal, and even though I showed them lots of information showing that it, it wasn't dangerous and that, in fact, it was the whole point of it was to avoid danger, they didn't seem to have any appreciation for the, for the harm they caused. And the town manager said, you know, yeah, I, I knew what was going on, and I knew that it could lead to a lawsuit, but I didn't do anything about it. Wow. And you know, the chief was like, yeah, I, my officers, they're police, they can do whatever they want. It's not really any of my business what they do. And this is a very dysfunctional police department, and, and I think the whole town government is actually pretty dysfunctional. I wonder, though, how uncommon that would be, though, because essentially, the way that I hear it and the way that I have heard the different steps of your story, it does seem like, you know, you're trying to just stand up and tell them that the world is up when they think it's down. Yeah. They're yeah. literally well, this, not hearing you because they can't envision the world that you see. I'm not the only one that's had problems with this police department. I mean, I, I personally know at least nine other people who have been mistreated by them. Some of them in, in much more serious ways than, sure. than I was. And I've heard lots of stories about other people who have been mistreated by them too. It's not just me, the crazy cyclist. I mean, this is a, this is a really messed up department. Yeah. I wonder what would happen if you invited the mayor and the police chief for a bike ride. 
<laughs> you know, so like, why don't you guys come and experience this along with me? It might be kind of fun sometime if we make it back to Massachusetts to have a, a little bike rally there where we can invite some of these guys and say, hey, you know, let's go do this. You know, let's put on some maybe fogged up glasses so that you can only see three or four feet or whatever, whatever, you know, whatever is the equivalent of what you experience day in and day out and say, come on, let's go see how this would work out. I wonder what their reaction yeah, well, to that would be. I tried very hard to have a dialogue with officials at all, at all levels, and they either rejected it or they just completely disregarded it. So I don't see any reason why they would be receptive to it now. But, I mean, I'm always happy to ride with people and to show them things. And I would have been, if the, the police thought that they had a better way to do it, then I would have been happy to have them show me what they would do and, and why. And then we could compare techniques or something, but they just, they stonewalled me. The whole thing got settled very recently. I want to know what the process was. I want to know what the settlement was. And, and then I want to know how you feel about it. You know, we had a, a mediation session, which didn't go very well. We both filed for summary judgment, both me and the defendants. For the non-lawyers, um, a summary judgment is basically the attorneys say, hey, the stuff here is so overwhelmingly in one direction that let's just spare us all a trial and judge, please just rule that we're right. Yeah, it basically says that the facts are not in dispute. case doesn't really rest on the facts. It just rests on an interpretation of the law. Right. So we don't need a trial. We just need you, the judge, to interpret the law for us. So in this summary judgment ruling, which is the first time a federal court has ever ruled on a cyclist's right to the road, the judge said a slower-moving bicyclist must pull to the right to allow a faster-moving motorist to pass when it is safe to do so under the conditions. This sounds like it's a restriction on cyclists, but it's actually not. You have a right to be there. That, yeah. Yeah, an affirmation of cyclist's right to road. What it implies is, one, the cyclist doesn't need to be on the edge by default. They only need to move over to allow someone to pass. It also means that it might not be safe to move over and allow someone to pass. And if it isn't, the cyclist doesn't have to do so. That's huge. Yeah. This is a federal judge, and this is the first time a, a federal judge has ever talked about a cyclist's right to the road. Awesome. So you get this opinion, and it was a long, I mean, it was a lengthy opinion in the summary judgment. The judge says, nope, I'm not going to do summary judgment. Well, he did on some of the issues, but you had some stuff remaining there at the end, right? Yeah. So the judge, he threw out some of the civil rights claims. He said that, you know, the others could be decided at trial. I certainly think they were all, the claims were valid, but the justice system is very much skewed in, in favor of police officers and also very much skewed against cyclists. So considering what was likely to happen, you know, it was, it was much better than, than what, what could have happened. And it definitely showed that it was at least plausible, like what I was claiming. This is a very important ruling. I think it was in September of this year. Right. And then based on that, we convinced the town to settle. The first agreement that we came to was that we would ask the judge to make another order that would distill what he said about the rights of cyclists into a sort of clearer and more complete, you know, short form. But the judge was not willing to make that order. He thought it was kind of inappropriate in this context. 
So what we agreed instead is that we would just take that language that was going to be in the order and put it in an ordinary settlement contract that could be enforced like a contract. It puts a greater burden on me to to enforce it if if it needs to be enforced, but it's still it's still enforceable. So in a sense now you have an agreement with the city that allows you essentially full freedom of movement so long as you obey the rules of the, the road, essentially. Yeah, the town has acknowledged in a binding agreement that I have the right to cycle on Route 9 and, and to control a lane when it's necessary for my safety. Now, I've gone through legal proceedings, <laughs> not necessarily my own, but uh, as you know, part of working with cities and different jurisdictions on different things. I've given right. expert testimony, et cetera. I've never found one to be fully satisfying. How do you feel at this point? This result was not entirely satisfying. I really wanted an order from the court. That's what pretty much the only thing I was asking for from the beginning. It was very disappointing when I found I couldn't get that. But this is an objectively good outcome for me, and it's an objectively good outcome for cyclists in Massachusetts it's taking me a while to realize that that good emotionally. This has been just such a drawn out, stressful process involving so many compromises that it's just hard for me to sort of accept that it's over and that I won. But slowly, it's it's coming to me. I look at you a little ways as not necessarily a crusader, but as someone who is obviously out there giving of themselves to an extent for not only your own personal rights, but also for a greater cause. What comes next for you, Eli? Where are you going with this next? What comes next is that I try to rebuild my life. I'm still working on teaching, you know, on teaching traffic cycling. I'm optimistic about that. I, it's taken a while, but I'm really sure that I'll be able to do a local class next spring. did classes in Portland, Maine before, but I haven't done a local class yet. But, you know, I'm still trying to figure out where to go from here because this was very disruptive and I need to figure things out all over again. It's a really tough situation. What yeah. advice would you give to other people out there, either people who have a vision impairment and have, you know, struggled in the way that you have prior or people who just want to cycle, maybe because they enjoy cycling, maybe because they can't afford a car, maybe because they've got a, a DUI and they can't drive or something along those lines. What, what kind of advice would you give to people who are kind of in the early stages of where you were when you began this approach? Some of the things that stop people from using bicycle transportation is one, they either think bicycle transportation is inherently limited or they think there's something about inherent in themselves that makes them incapable of, of using bicycle transportation. It's not true. You just need to learn how to do it. And people think of a bicycle as this, like, as so mundane. It's like this toy that, you know, how could there be something I don't know about it? But, but there is. There, there, there's always something you don't know about it. My advice to people is to not assume that you know everything there is to know and to go actually seek out information and seek out experiences so that you can get better and, and empower yourself to do more. If there's a cycling-savvy class in your area, I would take that, because that's 
one of the powerful things about this program that makes me really excited about is that it's focused on not just telling you stuff, but it's focused on creating an experience that changes the way you think. What would you want people driving to know and understand about not just you, but other cyclists on the road? I would like them to know that cyclists have a right to travel on the road and to travel on it in the same manner as motorists do, and that if there's a cyclist in your way, it's not because they're trying to get in your way or be a jerk. It's just because, just like you, they're they're trying to get where they're going. If you look out, you know, five years, 10 years into the future, just in your city, are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? How do you think that things will be for you five, 10 years from now where you live? Well, I think that where I live is a pretty good place, and I think it will continue to be a pretty good place. There are always exceptions. It's not it's not a perfect place, but, you know. Do you see things getting better from a, a cycling standpoint? Maybe. I mean, it's hard to tell because some things are getting worse and some things are getting better. And I don't know where the balance point is going to be, but I am optimistic. I'm somewhat optimistic that it will get better. Let me ask yeah. you a couple of technical questions just to kind of finish up here because one of my good friends, Clarence Eckerson, with street films went to the Netherlands earlier this year and yeah. took a, just an amazing bunch of photos. And, and there you have a true biking culture there where the predominant mode of transportation in cities for large parts of the population is cycling. They have all of the separate facilities. They have all of the separated bike lanes. They've really done an amazing thing. Here in this country, I see a lot of bike advocates arguing for essentially what I've called separate but equal facilities. We're going to have our own separate bike lane here. We're going to have our own separate place where we can be away from the cars. We'll control the intersections by signalization or what have you. That's a little bit different than what you're talking about, is it not? Yes, it is different. Let's discuss the nuance of that just in the closing moments here. So I think people can understand because at first when you described what you're doing and, and the approach that you took, I was a little bit, I won't say I was, I disagreed with you, but I was a little bit like, wow, that's way different than what I thought. I've come to kind of grow to respect it and understand it and actually think that you probably have the right solution, particularly in the U.S. where we're not going to build 10,000 miles of separated bike lanes in the next three years. So can you just yeah. talk a little bit about the difference between what you are putting forth and the notion of separate but equal facilities for bikes? I mean, you use the right word. I mean, separate but equal is not really equal, right? It's special bike facilities are usually, there's the main road that's sort of the main part of the road that's the convenient place for everyone to travel where the, the rules work to get everyone moving. And then there are these marginal spaces at the edge that that they shove cyclists into. And if you are afraid of cars, then you might think that being separated from cars is a good idea, but it actually puts people in a lot more conflict with motor traffic when you separate them, because then, of course, you can't separate them completely. There are going to be places where they have to cross. The more you separate them, then the more conflict there is when they have to cross. Right. Part of the problem that I see, we control those conflicts by giving priority. And priority just reinforces the mindset that you're seeing and having to deal with all the time, which is, this is my space. 
I, as a driver of the automobile, have a green light. This is my lane. I've been giving priority here, and nobody else belongs. So it's almost reinforcing the wrong mindset. That kind of territoriality, I mean, people who push for for bike lanes and stuff have the same problem with territoriality as they say, like, I want to have my space where cars can't go, right? And it doesn't matter how that affects traffic dynamics. It doesn't even matter how it affects traffic dynamics around me and my cycling experience. I want to have my territory. So I think it it works a lot better if people share the space and, and cooperate with each other than if everyone sort of tries to claim their own territory. I want to just close this out by thanking you for what you've done and, you know, being a pioneer and, you know, being the kind of person who kind of stands up for the unpopular when they think that it's right. I love your stuff and and I've admired what you've done ever since I came across it, but especially having met you and seeing kind of the fortitude that you bring to this. You're a very admirable person, and I, I thank you very much. And I'm really happy to have had this chance to chat with you again. Oh, thanks. I, I appreciate that. And I'm also hoping that I can chat with you off air at some point about some the other stuff that I've mentioned to you. Well, you and I are going to yeah. talk transition towns at some point. Transition towns, you know, fascinate me in many ways. I, I was not aware of them. When we first got started with the formal part of Strong Towns, you know, I was writing for a while and then we started the nonprofit and all of a sudden there's this transition town thing and I I found their work fascinating. And when I've ran into them, I really have enjoyed their stuff. You and I are going to chat about that and I'm actually hoping to get back to Massachusetts and maybe we can sit down sometime in the near future too. Oh, that would be awesome. And it would be really great if you came to this part of Massachusetts and I could show you the strong towns here that that I live in. I got to tell you, I have fallen in love with the Northeast. I love Minnesota. It's very nice. Today, it's seven below zero, and we just got a foot of snow yesterday. There are some challenges here from time to time. The Northeast just seems like one of the most beautiful places in the country with a little bit milder winters, but these great cities with the good bones that are still there. It's a wonderful place to live. I'm Every time I go there, I'm just delighted. So we'll make it uh, happen. All right. All right. Awesome. Let's do that. Hey, thanks, Eli. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Tune in again. And in the meantime, keep doing what you can to build strong towns. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.
The weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. And since we've no place to go, make it so, make it so, make it so. Man, it doesn't show signs of stopping. And I brought me some tea, gray hot. The lights are turned way down low. Make it so, make it so, make it so. When we finally kiss, good night. How I hate going out in the storm. But if you really shut up, Wesley. All the way home, I'll be warm. Oh, the fire is slowly.